Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science. I'm Susan Liebel at St. Joseph's University, and today I welcome Jeffrey Wasserstrom, the Chancellor's Professor of History at the University of California, Irvine, to discuss his extremely timely book, Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink, published by Columbia Global Reports in 2020. Jeff Wasserstrom has not only published acclaimed books on modern China, but but translated that research to the wider public in outlets like the Times Literary Supplement, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and on NPR. He's testified before a Congressional Executive Commission and conducted a U.S. State Department briefing on contemporary Chinese politics. Jeff's book and research is especially relevant today, May 21st, 2020, as the Chinese government has proposed new national security laws that would give the Chinese Communist Party greater control over Hong Kong, circumventing Hong Kong's autonomy. So on this not very happy day for Hong Kong, welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. So your book's title invokes the annual um, public commemoration or... uh, well, I don't know what to call it, of the Tiananmen Square protests uh, each July the 4th in Hong Kong. And and I'd wonder if we could start there. What made you so interested in Hong Kong and in this vigil that you came to write this book? So it's interesting. You, you misspoke and said July 4th rather than June 4th. But I think it's a very interesting thing because the June 4th vigil is in some ways linked to calls for dramatic change in Hong Kong, even that at their most radical could eventually, though not yet, be framed in a call for independence. Uh, But the June 4th vigil has been held um, since 1989 to commemorate the massacre that took place late on the night of June 3rd and early on the morning of June 4th in 1989 that crushed a protest wave that was spread across the People's Republic of China, but centered at Tiananmen Square. And those protests in 1989 were ones that people in Hong Kong watched very, very closely, because Hong Kong at the time was a British colony, but there were plans for it to become part of the People's Republic of China in 1997, on July 1st, 1997. So people in Hong Kong turned out in 1989 in solidarity protests with the protesters in the PRC who were fighting to make the Chinese Communist Party um, liberalized to some extent to become more responsive to the popular popular will. And when those protests, uh, nonviolent protests across the mainland, were crushed with state violence, this, of course, was a terrifying signal to people in Hong Kong, knowing that they would become part of this country in 1997, terrifying also to people in Macau, which was then a Portuguese colony nearby and was scheduled to become part of the People's Republic of China in 1999. 
So since 1989, on the mainland, you have not been able to commemorate the massacre, but you have had events to commemorate it in both Macau and in Hong Kong. So last year, when I started work on a book that was titled Hong Kong on the Brink, I hadn't yet given it the title Vigil. Um, I knew that one thing I wanted to do was be in Hong Kong for that candlelight vigil held in Victoria Park um, every year. I thought it was important to go over there. I'd never been there for that event, even though that event has been a crucial one within the democracy movement in Hong Kong for many years, even though I have studied the Tiananmen protests my whole um, career. I'd never made it over for that commemoration, even though I'd been writing and paying attention to Hong Kong protests in recent years. So I really wanted to be there. And one reason I wanted to be there was I thought there might not be that many more years when that kind of event could take place. An event that's banned on the rest of um, the, uh, this band across the mainland. There's a small vigil in Macau um, every year and a big one in Hong Kong. So I wanted to get there while there was still time. But I didn't have the idea that time was running out as quickly as it's turned out it has been because word has just come in this past week that there will not be authorization given for a vigil to take place this year on June 4th. Uh, the reason the government is giving is because they've extended social distancing guidelines that prevent any gathering of more than eight people uh, due to COVID-19. They've extended that through June 4th. Uh, it seems a very uh, ham-handed kind of move. They didn't say through the middle of June. They said, uh, they said just just enough time, really, so that um, this vigil could be blocked. That move was a distressing one to many people in Hong Kong and also seemed a very hypocritical one because the pandemic is largely under control in Hong Kong. And in fact, uh, the government said at the same time that religious gatherings would be allowed. They'd have to be only a half their normal size, but they could take place inside. So you have this sense where on June 4th, it would be considered acceptable for a hundred people to gather for a religious ceremony inside um, rather than people gathering outside to carry out this political ritual. So um, that's part of what, what's behind the focus on the vigil in the book. But I also, when we came up with the title vigil for the book, we were thinking not just of the actual vigil, the candlelight vigil, but the idea of a vigil being keeping watch on a dying patient or a patient you fear will die. And Hong Kong as a city has been a city that many of the things that people value about it have seemed threatened, have seemed in danger of dying, or have seemed to have already died and now be at the point of being mourned. So the title vigil really has that implication as well. And that's very powerful today when in some ways, um, Beijing seems to be killing off some of the things that remain that made Hong Kong special. You know, as I was reading, finishing the book today, given the news that had came out, I couldn't help but but view the book and would urge uh, listeners to think about it this way as a a history of the present that actually gives you the full context necessary for understanding what is happening today and why it would matter, but also reminding ourselves what things looked like before COVID-19, 
like helping understand why and how 2 million people in a country of 7 million people took to the streets in 2019 and 2020. Um, and I, and I, and I, what I, and I really want to get to the politics uh, of today, Thursday, but, um, but, but before we do that, can we go back a little bit and talk about uh, why Beijing is so threatened by Hong Kong, uh, and why something like political protest provokes um, the PRC? So I think um, one of the ways to, to, to think about this is the early years of Hong Kong being part of the People's Republic of China were really extraordinary because Hong Kong became part of a Communist Party-run country, but it was a part of it where you could do a variety of things that you can't do in any city of a Communist Party-run country that we're familiar with. Um, in Hong Kong, in 1997, the terms of the handover was something called one country, two systems, an idea that Hong Kong would become part of this country, but would have a high degree of autonomy and would be able to maintain its distinctive way of life for the first 50 years that it was part of the PRC. And part of that distinctive way of life was having newspapers that could make fun of Beijing. And newspapers continued to be able to run political cartoons that made fun of the leader of the Chinese Communist Party. And to just wrap your mind around that in the kind of comparative history of communism, there hasn't been a Communist Party-run state where there were newspapers published that mocked um, the leaders with um, consistency. Uh, Hong Kong was a place where you could put in to hold a permit to hold a demonstration. And if it was granted, you could hold a legal demonstration. And the demonstration could include people carrying signs, mocking the local leader and even mocking the national leader. So it's really, there were a lot of predictions uh, in the lead up to the handover that the Chinese Communist Party would just not put up with this at all, that instantly the things that made Hong Kong different would disappear. And those didn't happen. Uh, one thing was that Beijing really wanted Hong Kong to keep playing its economic role as a conduit for foreign businesses. It, it didn't want foreign international businesses to leave. Um, it wanted to be able to absorb Hong Kong. Um, there were other predictions that were made in the lead up to 1997 that were also wrong. There were some people who said, once a place that free becomes part of, of China, especially at a time when China was beginning to liberalize very slowly in certain ways, that it would have a liberalizing effect. It would sort of um, infect, in a positive sense, the rest of China, and the kind of freer media there would gradually become the norm in other places. So that didn't happen either. And the book's a lot about uh, mistaken predictions in, in both directions about the early years of Hong Kong's incorporation into the PRC. So what happened was um, that... Beijing probably all along wished that Hong Kong could remain economically different, but stop being so politically different. And so there were gradual efforts and pressure put on the Hong Kong authorities to try to tighten the screws a bit. Uh, the Hong Kong authorities themselves, um, the chief executive is the most powerful person in, in Hong Kong. Um, prior to 1997, the most powerful person was a colonial governor appointed by London. Um, when it was a colony, and the local people had no say in, in selecting that person. Uh, Beijing tried to present 
Hong Kong being part of the PRC as a form of liberation, that they'd saved Hong Kong from colonial control. And now there would be a chief executive who the Hong Kong people had some role in selecting, who was from the Hong Kong people. But they didn't allow for an open election or anything even close. Less than 2,000 local people in Hong Kong choose the chief executive. So it really is a new form of selection. It's chosen, uh, the person's chosen as somebody who Beijing can work with. In the past, it's usually been a member of the Hong Kong economic elite um, from the tycoon group. And those are people who also kind of shared with Beijing the view that Hong Kong's economic differences were important, the political ones uh, less so. So there's always been a tension. And there's been a tension that what does that two systems part of the one country, two systems mean? Does it just mean a different economic system? Or is it the whole bundle of things that makes Hong Kong different, a different rule of law, more independent courts, uh, freer press? some of these things that were already there under um, colonial rule, and some things that people hoped in Hong Kong, that things that they'd not had under colonial rule, but they hoped they would have, such as a direct say in um, the, the most powerful person governing there. So the protests that there have been in Hong Kong, and there have been a lot of them from 2003, especially up to last year, have usually been about one of two things, either pushback, when the local authorities backed by Beijing have tried to tighten the screws on Hong Kong and take away something that Hong Kong people already had, or very occasionally more proactive, um, trying to get something that people in Hong Kong haven't had, perhaps have never had, like uh, direct elections for the chief executive. So you can map out the different protests of the past as either being, in the language of Charles Tilley and others have used for social movements, either reactive protests, trying to push back against taking away something that people value, or proactive protests, trying to gain new kinds of rights and freedoms. Uh, One of the biggest protests, or the first really big important protest in 2003, was to push back against local authorities trying to institute a national security law, an anti-sedition law, that had a lot in common with the Patriot Act that had gone through in the United States in 2001 after 9-11. Um, But people in Hong Kong saw this as the beginning to take Hong Kong down a slippery slope toward being tightly controlled by Beijing. So hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets to demand that this be tabled. And the government, the local authorities blinked, and they pulled back from bringing in that um, anti-sedition law. So um, that was something that emboldened protesters in Hong Kong and really reinforced their sense that there was something meaningful to the two systems, part of one country, two systems. So that national security law is the very thing that has been periodically talked about as being renewed by the authorities in Hong Kong. Um, And then there's often been back and forth um, preventing it from happening. And that's what just today Beijing has said. They're tired of waiting for the local authorities to handle it, even local authorities trying to do their bidding, and they're going to do it themselves. And that's why this day is a momentous one in Hong Kong history. Uh, I want to get to the day. I just want to push in one thing, which is that one of uh, the things I appreciated so much about this book is the lack of simplicity of the English regime and the rule of law versus communism. So instead of it being black and white, I think that 
the narrative gives us a much more nuanced understanding of what was both positive and negative about British rule in Hong Kong, such that the turnover wasn't moving from a completely autonomous, uh, empowered democracy to a a dark communist regime. And I think that uh, readers will appreciate that nuance throughout the narrative. They can hear some of it here, but um, it's even even more um, uh, noticeable in the book. So, so let's let's talk about today and what happened today. Um, for some viewers of China, this was unexpected. This was more aggressive. There were some people who thought that the PRC would just run the clock out. Um, 2047 isn't that far away. The virus has given them uh, lots of excuses to tamp down protest. Did you see what happened today as particularly aggressive suppression? Is it something that you were expecting? Uh, How do you put this in perspective? So I wouldn't say I was expecting this specific thing to happen, but in another way, I think the trajectory is following one of, um, of more aggressive interference. There was something that in retrospect, at least, seems to foreshadow this, which happened in 2016. And I happened to be in Hong Kong when a protest uh, related to it took place. There had been a couple of very pro-democratic lawmakers, um, localist lawmakers who'd been elected um, after the 2014 umbrella movement to, to try to push things along in a more democratic mode. And they had... Um, they had made fun of the oath of office they were taking. They had used the taking the oath to become part of the legislative council um, as a time to lash out at uh, the Chinese Communist Party rule, and they'd been disqualified from office because of that. And they had they had taken this issue to court, and Hong Kong does have um, has had largely independent courts. And it was working its way through the courts as to whether their disqualification would stand or whether they would be reinstated. And they probably would have been disqualified by the court. But Beijing became impatient at waiting for this to um, play out. And they intervened and said, we're deciding this, they're disqualified. And it was one of those moments where it's, and it, the, there, there hadn't been big protests up to that point, things had calmed down after the umbrella movement, when there were giant protests in 2014. But this, um, this move by Beijing to interfere triggered um, renewed protests in Hong Kong. And it was one of those moments where you thought, why couldn't they just wait it out? And from Beijing's point of view, I think it was, why do we need to put up with this when uh, it's just kind of a, an irritation? So we've seen things like this before when um, the Chinese Communist Party especially under Xi Jinping, though it started before him, is just eager to bring different parts of the country under tighter control. And we've seen um, in places like Xinjiang, a very, very brutal form of control, even more brutal than what was going on there beforehand. And in the more lightly controlled parts of the country, particularly um, Hong Kong, but also Macau, there's been a tightening uh, of, of the screws. So it wasn't It wasn't expected, but it also wasn't something that was completely surprising. And I think it's an opportunistic move in part because there's a realization in Beijing that the world's bandwidth right now is limited for uh, taking steps 
against Beijing on this, that the pandemic is incredibly distracting to people. People also um, are feeling skeptical about institutions for understandable reasons in many, many parts of the world. And um, even the number of journalists covering it and being able to, to devote attention to it uh, has been lessening due to a mix of political issues, but also just pure economic ones. So um, I think that fits in there. But I'd like to go back to something that you said in that very nice comment about the book and um, the nuance or getting beyond uh, simple black and white. One of the things that I've gotten a much clearer sense of while working on this and paying attention to Hong Kong and just thinking through it and thinking about the PRC in general is that empire and colonialism can just take many different forms. And that if we if we just think about the structure of Hong Kong before 1997 and ni- after 1997 being one in which a distant capital had a lot of power over what was being done locally, and we think of that as being varieties of what defines empire, very broadly defined, that there are many different forms it can take. There are colonial systems in which the capital um, continually exerts a kind of iron fist and nothing but an iron fist over a locale. But there are also ones where there's a degree of paternalism and there's a degree of um, autonomy granted. There are many different kinds of empires in history that just operated differently, um, including in China's past, different dynasties, different empires had tighter or less control over outlying areas. Uh, in other parts of the world, you know, the Ottoman Empire did not operate the same way as the British Empire. So if we think about Hong Kong being part of a British empire that operated in a certain way, and then became part of a Chinese empire that operated in a different way, and in between was briefly part of a Japanese empire that operated in still a different way, um, that we can think about there being difference, even if um, there are, uh, we put this within the same very, very broad category. And another empire that I've thought about a lot that's still different in the way it operates is for, is the Soviet Empire. Um, during the during the time of the Soviet Union, there was one way in which Moscow directed a, uh, exerted a high degree of control over places within the USSR, but it also had a kind of neo-colonial um, control over satellite countries such as um, Poland and East Germany and Hungary. And I think in some ways that might be, though it's an imperfect analogy, there are no perfect analogies for Hong Kong situation. That I think is one of the most um, meaningful ones is to think about Hong Kong's position within the PRC as being a bit like different satellite countries within um, the Soviet constellation, some of which were more tightly controlled, some of which were less tightly controlled and had different degrees of autonomy. Um, They all had local leaders who claim to be protecting the local community, but at certain times seem to be taking their cues from Moscow. And so I think it's useful to think about that. And it prepared that it could have prepared us, I think, for a variety of different kinds of moves that happened. Because in the history of the Cold War, there were times when there were uprisings in uh, satellite states within the Soviet system, where Soviet tanks rolled in and crushed them. There were other times when the signal was given to local authorities, you bring this under control yourself, especially if you don't want us to intervene. 
and local authorities were sometimes the ones who carried it out. Uh, I'm thinking about one analogy for recent moves in Hong Kong when the local authorities were taking control to what happened in Poland in the early 1980s after very large solidarity protests, the first waves of them, when the Polish authorities instituted martial law and put a lot of the leaders of solidarity um, in jail, carried out a crackdown, but it wasn't a crackdown with Soviet tanks in the streets. It was the Polish authorities doing things. And I think we sometimes get led astray if we think of um, there was too much talk at times in the press and among particularly kind of columnists to talk about will there be tanks in the streets the way there were at the end of Tiananmen uh, if protests in Hong Kong continue. And I think that really had a distorting effect because then it made some people think anything short of tanks in the streets and automatic weapon fire killing many people was less than a harsh response. And so it actually was a very harsh response, but a different kind of one. Uh, a subtler one in some ways, um, didn't raise the alarms the way it probably should have. Let me ask you two probably related questions. One has to do with the press and civil liberties. When people think about China, they often have to wade through the complexity of a country that on the one hand embraces the free market, on the other hand has very particular sensitivity about certain forms of liberties, particularly assembly, freedom of speech, and um, freedom of the press. You're talking about the press in two different ways. You're talking about the Hong Kong press, or three different ways, the Chinese press, and also the American and uh, European and other international presses in terms of, of reporting this story. And I was wondering if you could just unpack a little bit the extent to which it is in the interest of Beijing and the PRC to not have this reported, and to what extent it is now in anyone's interest to push for freedom in Hong Kong. In other words, in whose interest is this now to either report or to uh, for, for any particular nation to see this as in their national interest to support the people of Hong Kong's expression of civil liberties. Yeah, you've, you've unpacked it really well. I do think the, uh, and the press is a, is a fascinating angle on this because there is still a degree of freedom of the press in Hong Kong, even though it's been threatened in many ways. You can still have um, Hong Kong journalists interviewing people when they're arrested, if they're then awaiting trial, and you can, people, um, People don't become uh, publicly voiceless as quickly as they do um, often when they're repressed on the mainland. Um, all of this, again, there needs to be nuance. There are quite daring journalists on the mainland with less and less freedom to do this that have pushed very hard to keep a kind of muckraking role where they can in reporting about things on the mainland. And they're more and more constrained, but they still struggle uh, to get their voices out. Maria Repnikova writes very um, powerfully about this and about the need to, to keep that in mind. But it is the, the freedom of the press is one of the clearest markers of difference between Hong Kong and the mainland. And it was a chilling thing recently when what's usually happened in the past when a journalist is, is kicked out of the mainland or is unable to get a visa, that then they move to Hong Kong to operate. But in this um, tit for tat, 
pushes against journalists between DC and Beijing most recently that led to the ouster of some um, American journalists linked to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and other and other outlets. It was said by Beijing this time, which it hadn't in the past, and don't think that they can just go to Hong Kong to try to cut that off. Um, I also want to make sure I mention that I have incredible admiration for um, a lot of the people covering the story in Hong Kong. They're very brave journalists who are out on the streets, physical, um, facing physical dangers in reporting the story, um, being tear gassed, being pepper sprayed. And um, especially those who are Hong Kongers are taking risks about uh, their long-term ability to stay in, um, in the country. And even though I'm delighted to have a chance to talk so much about my book, I do want to give a shout out to a book that's coming out that's a collection of essays by um, Hong Konger journalists and one mainland journalist uh, writing under anonymity. Um, Holmes Chan um, edited it, and it's called um, Aftershock essays from Hong Kong or something like that. So keep an eye for it. It's coming out at the end of May and it's personal essays by people who've been covering the story uh, very valiantly. Um, and Anthony Daparan, who's um, a journalist and a lawyer, has a book out that's uh, called City on Fire that is also um, very good about the, very much about the 2019 protests as opposed to the broader historical, less interested in the historical and comparative issues, some of them that I bring up, but incredibly um, effective reportage and analysis um, of, of recent events. So I, I, I see these books as ones that are good to read in tandem with mine, and they're all short. So it isn't like saying, here's a 500-page book that you'll read, so you won't have time to read um, mine. But um, with the question you asked about whose interest is in, I think the pandemic Ironically, even though it's given opportunities for um, for freedoms to be curtailed in Hong Kong, has provided a very good reminder of why it's in the global interest and many of our national interests to have Hong Kong be a freer place um, than mainland cities and yet be perched near the mainland. When the SARS um, epidemic that did not become a pandemic um, early in the 2000s, one reason why it was nipped in the bud was that there was a lot of good reporting about it in Hong Kong, even at times when the mainland authorities were trying to cover up some things about it. And um, there are ways in which Hong Kong having a freer press limits the degree to which um, the mainland authorities can cover up things that they don't want to get out. Um, Hong Kong has been a place where there's been a lot of important coverage of corruption within the Chinese Communist Party, but it's also a place where if there were an, an environmental disaster on the mainland that the mainland wanted to uh, keep, um, keep information controlled about, the fact that a freer press exists in Hong Kong with people with, with, when there's a lot of coming and going across the border and people have different kinds of connections across the border is something that is a check on the ability of a, an authoritarian regime that is devoted to secrecy. Um, it limits the amount of secrecy there. So it's going to be a real cost, not just to Hong Kong people, but to the world, if um, Hong Kong continues to lose its special role as a kind of, I think sometimes as an airlock between systems, a place where um, things can 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 move and information can flow. 
Um, but you also mentioned different liberties. Um, and I do think that puts a, you put a finger on it that the Chinese Communist Party is pretty comfortable with certain kinds of economic liberties and would like people to be very free in the way they spend money in particular. And they wish that the special administrative regions, which is what Hong Kong and Macau were called, would be places where people indulged in that kind of liberty, but not in the political liberty. And Macau suits Beijing pretty well, because in Macau, there's a slightly freer press and a slightly more uh, democratic system, but not a lot of protests. And the main distinguishing feature there is that people spend their money freely in some distinctive ways with casinos and gambling. And if only from Beijing's fantasy, if only Hong Kong could be a place that had somehow a different kind of stock market and a different kind of pattern of international investment, and maybe even a different kind of consumerism, but didn't have protests, well, that would be lovely. Something you said earlier just fascinates me about Hong Kong as this place in which this active reporting provides a a service, almost a firewall for the rest of the world, especially in uh, in, a, in a case such as a pandemic or or SARS. Do you think leaders across the globe fully understand this role that Hong Kong has played historically, as traced in the book? And do and and do do are they going to respond to this letter today that is addressed to them saying this don't get involved this is our sovereignty this is our national security we're taking care of our business don't interfere will the nations that matter in in this and and tell us which ones you think they are do they fully understand this role that the press and these liberties play in Hong Kong. You know, I worry that I worry that they don't because I think um, if 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 there was awareness of this, I think there would have been much more concern at the expulsion of the journalists um, earlier this year, including a statement about Hong Kong. And instead, the expulsion of the journalists, it seems to me, got treated like one more example of things that had happened before or as being novel only in the sense that they were part of this um, toxic back and forth between DC and Beijing rather than that other element in there. It's very hard to figure out what exact role um, the world can do, uh, other countries can do. I think it is crucially important to pay attention and to make it, to, to convey messages um, to Beijing about lines being crossed and not simply say we're paying attention where the the world, ordinary people around the world, it would be great if they would could find the bandwidth to pay attention and to uh, keep up with the story. Governments, I think at this point, need to move further than just saying we're going to monitor the situation. They need to say uh, when something dramatic happens that this this is a line that's 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 being crossed, and it's 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 hard to see how that how that will happen. I, it, it's frustrating. There needs to be there needs to be pushback. There needs to be um, many countries involved pushing back. That's something that there needed to be with Xinjiang in the last um, two years, when it was abundantly clear just how horrific the human rights abuses um, going on 
with the camps there were. And I think one thing that's emboldened uh, Beijing on the case of Hong Kong is a sense that they haven't paid a giant price for those really grotesque uh, human rights abuses um, in Xinjiang. So I do think all of these things are connected and it's not about, it's, it's, it's important to not lapse into um, things that veer off into uh, hyperventilating yellow peril thinking or old style red menace thinking, but really thinking in a very kind of um, specific way, pushing back against um, violations of human rights norms, especially when they're moving in directions that haven't been moved before, lest it just seem that what did you expect from a, an authoritarian communist party run state, which is how the rhetoric sometimes, sometimes seems. So I think you know, the last few years have been incredibly uh, worrisome and there'll be momentary, there'll be some very good coverage of it, but then it doesn't lead to sustained concern and sustained interest and I'll just say that the the one thing that really doesn't help is what um, Donald Trump in particular has done, which is to criticize China or sometimes implicitly or not so implicitly criticize the Chinese people by using terms like Chinese virus, but at the same time praise the autocratic strongman leader in Beijing, Xi Jinping, who has been largely the architect of um the tightening moves, or certainly it's been you've been providing the cues for other officials uh, to carry them out. That's not what you want to do. He thrives on a kind of personality cult and a rhetoric that the world is a dangerous place and it needs a strongman leader like him in control. So to criticize the Chinese and praise Xi Jinping is absolutely the wrong way to handle the situation. I have a question about the press, and, and that that's terrific. And I think that uh, um, uh, one of the earlier books that I did on China, Michelle Murray's, uh, talked a lot about narratives and the power of narratives and the extent to which there perhaps is an opening to speak about China in a way such that you can um, leverage something. And I think what you're pointing out is that this is this is about as as opposite as as one could could do if you were building a narrative uh, uh, for, for anything that would, would help achieve uh, either um, goals for Hong Kong, for China, for the rest of the world. But you, you've mentioned a few times the press and about bandwidth and the public. And so um, two questions. One, I think the bandwidth of the public is really strained right now, um, in part because we're in the middle of a of a of a sort of a global trauma, and some people have not responded to trauma by opening up uh, challenging news outlets and uh, participating in their freedom of the press and freedom of speech. I'm not sure what would bring them to do that. And so, one question would be, you know, to what extent are uh, is the press in the United States and elsewhere? Um, able to do this at this point? And do you see any, do you, do you see the possibility of change on that? Or is this the story that is the only story that can be reported right now? And second, is there any nation that you look at and see the leader crafting narrative that you see as more positive and more having more potential 
to in fact improve the situation to either put pressure on the PRC and Beijing or um, empowering the uh, citizens of Hong Kong. Wow, that's a really tall order. I, I um, so I think it is a tough time um, for the press. I would try to say that if, if there's a source of optimism, I have it's that some of the press on the left in the United States, which for a long time I think paid too little attention um, to Hong Kong struggles and too little attention to Xinjiang, and somehow had trouble figuring out how to deal with. Um, with China in general, there have been some really encouraging signs. The nation has had wonderful coverage of Hong Kong Agreed. in um, the recent past, and they've added um, Wilfred Chan as a kind of ongoing contributing writer who does that. They have editors who are concerned about Dissent Magazine, which I'm on the editorial board, and they added me to the editorial board in part with an idea of trying to get more coverage of China in there. So I, I do think that is you know, trying to find some sort of, sort of optimism. There's, there's some thinking there. And related to that, I'd say the biggest thing for narratives, one of the things is to, um, one of the worrisome parts of the narrative coming out of um, Beijing has been an idea of owning the idea of Chineseness and trying to, uh, we saw this with the Olympic opening ceremonies and others, to kind of say that the Chinese Communist Party represents all of Chinese tradition. Um, it represents the uh, revolutionary tradition, but it also represents the tra- the kind of classical traditions by invoking Confucius and starting Confucius Institutes. And I think um, one of the things we can try to do, and that some people in the press certainly do do, is tell stories about Taiwan, which has links to the Chinese tradition, but is um, is representing very different features of it. Um, has a democratic system, uh, so it kind of undermines any notion that anything fundamental about Chinese culture, um, which is just not true, that things about Chinese culture don't go along with democracy. You can say, just look at, at Taiwan. I think Hong Kong, too, the, the kind of creativity of the protest, the cosmopolitanism of the protest, uh, these are things that can be played up as a way of representing a kind of alternative definition of Chineseness. And um, Protesters in Hong Kong have sometimes said, don't think of us as Chinese. And I think this is something that's hard for Westerners to understand. I mean, there are Hong Kongers. One of the beautiful things about Hong Kong identity is you can be a Hong Konger, even if you're not of of Chinese ancestry. Um, People from from the South Asian roots and with European roots can be Hong Kongers. But what even Hong Kongers of Chinese descent mean by that is we don't accept the definition of Chineseness that's coming out of Beijing. And I think as a kind of educating ourselves function of this, I think one of the, again, imperfect analogies to bring up is it's quite easy to be somebody of Jewish descent in America and say you're anti-Zionist and you, have, you, have, you don't believe in the politics of the state of Israel. And yet you're, you're connected to Jewish tradition in one way or another, or you're certainly not ashamed of being Jewish. There needs to be some way to open that space relating to China. That because in a sense, early in the history of Israel, Israel wanted to be the the, the representative of global Judaism, and there were um, there were Jews who just rejected that and tried to carve out a different definition of that. And that's part of what I see 
going on in places like Taiwan and in Hong Kong. And there's the potential for um, members of the Chinese diaspora all over the world to think about things in those terms, as some of them are, and think about what it could mean to tell a story about Chinese identity that has a place for it um, for people that are rejecting uh, Beijing's and Xi Jinping, the Chinese Communist Party's attempt to monopolize um, that identity category. So I think that's something that's very important. I think um, it's hamstrung when when critics of um, Beijing fall into the trap of using racialized language because that actually plays into the hands of, uh, of Beijing. But I think there's a lot of roles that uh, narrative can play. And I, I'd say one other thing I want to give a, a shout out for is there's a group called Chinese Storytellers, which are um, journalists and freelance writers of Chinese descent who are trying, who disagree about many things, but are trying to amplify each other's voices and to try to break the idea of any kind of um, uniformity among um, voices of uh, people of Chinese descent and just get more varied voices of Chinese descent out into uh, the discourse about China and about the world in general. Jeff, what are you working on now? So I'm working on a book right now about 1900, uh, the Boxer Uprising. And um, it was it's a long in the works project that I, I put on hold while I became obsessed with Hong Kong. Um, but it's been a very interesting one to go back to right now because 1900 was a time of um, intense nationalism um, and anti-foreignism in China and also um, yellow peril fears uh, in the West. It was also a time when there was a global news story that seemed to captivate everybody's attention, the 55-day siege of Beijing, when the anti-Christian boxers backed by the Qing dynasty uh, threatened the lives of foreigners um, as well as Chinese Christians. Uh, I'm fascinated by it. It was an early time of new media of communication. Um, the Telegraph then had had a world-shaking, world-shrinking power like the internet has had recently. And people had this sense of following the same story around the world. And yet, as I think we see with the pandemic as well, the way they understood that story was continually being shaped and sometimes distorted by very local concerns. So uh, somebody recently asked me to sum up the um, thesis of the book, if there is one. And I think there's kind of a two-part thesis. We've been global a lot longer than we often think we were. The world was very tightly connected in 1900 in ways that are sometimes not appreciated, though uh, historians have, have been making this point from various ways in the history of in world history. But so we've been global for a long time, but also we've never been global. And we still aren't global now that even when we're following seemingly the same story, uh, it's refracted by local experiences, and that actually has real consequences. Some of the countries that have handled the pandemic best have been ones that were near SARS and immediately started thinking of the need to take it seriously become a, because of SARS, whereas ones for whom more distant plagues were, um, were more common reference points maybe thought of it as a more distant kind of threat. And just the way in which it's understood in different places is through different analogies. I keep coming back to analogies in my work on the present, but I think it's very important in the work on the past as well. 
that people talk about it. They use history. History doesn't provide perfect analogies, but the imperfect ones shape the way we make sense of the present. That was true in 1900 when different analogies were brought up for the boxers. Um, In America, there were some people who thought they were like the ghost dance um, insurgents. In England, there were some who thought they were like the 1857 um, activists in India. Um, Now, we had some people in China during the early stages of the pandemic wondering if this would be China's Chernobyl. In the US, we had some people talking about it being like 9-11. I think the tension between the world being tightly interconnected but our understandings of it being re- being refracted by local points of reference is w- a very important and still sometimes underappreciated feature of living in modern times. Well, that's an incredibly eloquent way for us to end. And and I want to say on a personal note that I I used Vigil um, in a class this spring. And it was a remarkably good book for students. So I want to say to listeners that I found the book to be helpful as a way to contextualize where our relationship is with China, why we are in the place that we are, and how the crossroads look, what the alternatives are. I think Jeff presents the most remarkably well-written, nuanced book and it is so short. So this is a book that you can pick up and read no matter how your bandwidth has been affected by the virus. And I um, I recommend that you get a copy of Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink. It's published by Columbia Global Reports. It's available on um, uh, bookshop.org, which I'm I'm pushing and hoping that people will support their brick and mortar bookstores despite them being closed. And um, I'll give a shout out again to Labyrinth Books in New Jersey, who will mail books directly to you free of charge. It's also available, obviously, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, as well as the publisher uh, Columbia Global Reports' website. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us and. Um, it, it was just uh, uh, remarkable for the timing to be as it was so that you could help explain this remarkable and, and sad um, contemporary moment for us. I'm so grateful to have this opportunity. And I, I love the questions. And I love the fact that I could come to St. Joseph's when there were still live visits possible and do one of the very last live events I was able to do was, um, was out there and to some of the students you were teaching. So that was tremendously gratifying. So this is a perfect uh, sequel to that. Well, thanks so much. And, and good luck with the book and with the next book. And we look forward to hearing about the next one on New Books Network.